Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. I am Dr. Michael Delgado. I am Good Dog's standards and research lead. We're here today with Dr. Chris Zink. So thank you everyone for joining us. We're really excited to have her. Just to tell you a little bit about Good Dog before we dive in. Good Dog is on a mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them by advocating for dog breeders, educating the public, and promoting canine health and responsible dog ownership. We are a secure online community created just for dog breeders, and we are completely free for dog breeders too. If you aren't yet a member of our community, we invite you to learn more about our mission and apply to join at www.gooddog.com slash join. I'm going to start off by handing things over to Dr. Judy Stella. She is going to introduce Dr. Chris Zink. So, Judy. Welcome, everyone. We're really happy today to announce the launch of Good Dog's first research collaboration. One of the most important aspects of our mission is stressing the importance of health as a pillar of dog well-being. As a technology company, we recognize the potential for revolutionary insights and progress in canine health that recent technological and scientific advancements have made possible. The possibilities for these groundbreaking advancements, however, are dependent upon collaboration between breeders, veterinarians, scientists, and members of the public who care for and love dogs. This research project is the first of many that Good Dog is planning in the years to come. We hope that you will join us in our search for answers so we can build a better world for our dogs. With that, I'm excited to introduce our esteemed colleague and collaborator on this project, Dr. Chris Zink. Dr. Zink has spent her career as a research scientist at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, focusing on the response of the immune system to retroviruses such as HIV. She is also a world-renowned expert in canine sports medicine and rehabilitation. Dr. Zink was instrumental in establishing the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation as one of the newest specialties in veterinary medicine and was named Outstanding Woman Veterinarian of the Year in 2009. She is award-winning author of numerous books and co-editor of the first ever textbook on canine sports medicine and rehabilitation. So welcome, Dr. Zink and Dr. Delgado. Go ahead and take it away. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Zink, for being here. So excited to launch this project. Obviously, Judy just gave us a really nice introduction to you and your background and all these amazing things you do. But can you tell me how you got interested in questions around spay, neuter, and alternatives for dogs? Like, how did you get from your work at Hopkins and your work in canine sports to the questions of spay and neuter? So it actually turns out to be kind of a personal story. Many, many years ago, actually 1985, I was getting a golden retriever and I had a choice between two of them that looked very similar and seemed very similar behaviorally and temperamentally and everything. So I picked one. And when they were two years old, I met the one that I hadn't picked and it didn't really look like a golden retriever. It was long legged. It was skinny. It had a narrow head. It had a fluffy, weird coat that floated out from the sides. And I thought to myself, man, I really picked the right one. You know, I don't know why this one ended up being that way. But over time, it started to dawn on me that that was because that dog had been neutered at six months and my dog was intact. And I began to think about the whole thing about what the gonads really are for. And I started to realize that the ovaries and the testicles are not just about reproduction, but rather that they have many, many functions across the body. And so the more I thought about it and the more that I read about it, 
I started gathering data and realizing that perhaps there were other ways to prevent a dog from breeding other than removing their gonads. And of course, there are. And so I started to gather the data and encourage people and actually publish some papers on my own about the subject, encouraging people to really think a little bit more deeply about this subject, that we shouldn't just be performing mass veterinary medicine on all dogs without thinking more broadly about the consequences. And it can be a controversial topic depending on what circles you run in, I'm sure. Did you face any resistance when you... Oh, I really did. I I really did. And, And, you know, I think the two main groups that I faced a lot of resistance from were veterinarians and rescue organizations or shelter groups. And it's been tough a little bit, to be really honest, sometimes, especially with my veterinary colleagues. But I, for a long, long time, believed what I was taught in veterinary school without really questioning it. But I think what's happened, you know, in the last probably 10 years, maybe 15 years, there have been more and more publications and studies looking into this question by not just me anymore, but by other scientists and other veterinary schools such as UC Davis. And so I think we're at a point now where there's an accumulation of data that if we really are responsible, we need to think about what all that data means and some of the alternatives that are available to people to prevent reproduction, if that's their choice. Yeah, that's a great point. So you mentioned your journey and kind of you learned about these alternative procedures. So you kind of hinted at this, but why should someone consider a vasectomy or an ovary sparing spay as opposed to just not leaving their dog intact? So the gonads, of course, they produce the eggs and the sperm, but they also produce hormones, estrogen, testosterone being the ones we think about most, but there are others as well. And the interesting thing about the endocrine system is that the entire endocrine system in the body is a series of feedback loops. And so the pituitary makes some hormones that tell the ovary to do something and the ovary produces hormones. And then those feed back to the pituitary and the pituitary slows down on what it's producing. And so one of the papers that, well, over time, there were a number of things I noticed. And one of the things was that this whole thing about this litter mate of mine, why did he look so different? And he looked that different because we know that testosterone and estrogen are responsible for stopping growth. And if we remove the testosterone and estrogen, growth continues. But because the growth of various bones stops at different times, that continued growth tends to make a dog an abnormally shaped dog. And you might think to yourself, well, what does that matter? But One of the things that I started to notice was there were more and more publications. And in fact, there are eight publications out now showing that dogs that are spayed or neutered have more cranial cruciate ligament rupture. And of course, that's an issue that's a big deal for people. It's a very costly surgery. And if you don't do the surgery, then the dog is going to develop arthritis and have a lifetime of pain and discomfort. And so that was a big one. And then there started to surface these publications showing that Dogs that were spayed or neutered, and honestly, it didn't even matter what age they were spayed or neutered at, they had a higher incidence of a variety of cancers, and in particular, fatal cancers like hemangiosarcoma, lymphoma, osteosarcoma, transitional cell carcinoma, etc. And I actually published a study in Vigilas, and others have published studies looking at this in golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, and German shepherds and other breeds. 
So that started to really hit home. But one of the things that really got me worried was that in my study, in Vigla's, not only did dogs get more cancer if they were spayed or neutered, regardless of the age they were spayed or neutered, but it happened at a younger age. Now that starts to really be meaningful because every golden retriever I've had has died of cancer, but... One of my last golden retriever died at 15 and a half of cancer. So So I'm okay with that. We all have to go somewhere. (laughs) But I have friends that have had dogs die of hemangiosarcoma at three or three and a half years of age before the prime of their life even. And so that really worried me. And then here's the cool thing, how this all comes together with the endocrine system. It was a paper that was published that showed that there's a hormone secreted by the pituitary that goes to the ovaries and testicles and tells them to make estrogen and testosterone. And when the ovaries and testes are gone, that pituitary keeps making the hormone and making the hormone and making the hormone. And what does that hormone do in the body? It binds to cells. And what happens when it binds to the cell membrane? It does two things. It induces inflammation and it stimulates replication of the cells. So now this starts to make us understand why that endocrine mismanagement that is happening can lead to cancer. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. And yeah, I think, you know, certainly some of the arguments I've heard have been like, well, spay and neuter dogs do tend to live longer. So exactly what you said, they're going to go somehow. So we expect that a lot of older pets are going to develop cancer, but the fact that they're developing it younger obviously is very concerning. Now, if people want to get a vasectomy or an ovary sparing spay for their dog. So you mentioned like in vet school, you learned, you know, spay and neuter. That's kind of the mantra. Did you learn how to do a vasectomy in vet school or an ovary sparing spay? No, you know, it wasn't even on the radar at all. And I still don't think it's on the radar in veterinary schools. I mean, veterinary school curriculum is overwhelming already. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they would love to fit another year of education (laughs) in so they can put all this information out, but they're not going to do that. So no, it isn't available, but... More and more people are doing it. And I will tell any of you veterinarians out there, if you're interested in knowing how to do a vasectomy, I have a very detailed video by a surgeon that describes how to do it. So I can provide that to veterinarians. There isn't, to the best of my knowledge, any published data on ovary sparing spay in which you take out the uterus, but you leave the ovaries behind. I mean, it's one of the reasons we're setting up this survey. We want to know more about the effects of these surgeries in dogs. We can't borrow from humans and we can't borrow from cats or horses or anything else because the reproductive cycles are very different in each species. So we got to know about it in dogs. Gotcha. So if someone wants to find a veterinarian who can perform one of these procedures, or does a veterinarian have to find like kind of a mentor who's already doing these procedures to learn? And where can people go if they are interested in one of these procedures for their dog? Currently, there's no one place to look, but there's a Facebook group called OSS, I think it's Ovary Sparing Spay and Vasectomy Information Group. Okay. And that's on Facebook. And it's got, I think, more than a thousand members. And you can ask there for who has had Hmm. the surgery done on their dog and whether they were satisfied and who they had do it. So that's one thing. Another place to find veterinarians who will do this is at Parsimus Foundation. That's P-A-R-S-E-M-U-S Foundation. And if you look at that on Google, you'll find that. 
So they keep a list of veterinarians who do this surgery as well. And of course, we have social media. So you can always ask around and you'll find someone. Although, and actually, to be honest with you, whenever I speak to veterinary groups, I'm getting a lot of interest. There's a lot who want to learn how to do it. Cool. And I think we're going to drop the link for Parsimus.org. So it is the Parsimus Foundation. Their website is www.parsimus.org. That's P-A-R-S-E-M-U-S. So if anyone's looking for that directory, unfortunately, you may not find a veterinarian close to you. So if this is something you're interested in, you might have to travel. You'll kind of want to weigh the risks and benefits. A lot is going to just be dependent on whether or not there's a veterinarian in your area. But like Dr. Zink mentioned, ask other dog owners, dog breeders, dog lovers, and they may know someone who's not on that list that can help you out as well. So reach out to your colleagues and fellow dog lovers. Okay, so I had a question kind of about what else do the gonadal hormones do? And I think you addressed that already. So it's really getting this idea across that it's not just like, you know, the gonads just affect reproduction. They do affect the whole body. They affect growth. I mean, we think they even affect behavior, obviously. I mean, you and Dr. James Serpel have talked about this as well and done research on the effects of early spay-neuter on behavior. So it's more than just... Very broad effects in the body. Yeah. Okay, so what made you think there needs to be research on this topic? How did we get from you recognizing that, you know, this was an alternative to like, hmm, we need research? I think that the situation regarding vasectomy is pretty straightforward because we've done probably millions of vasectomies in men and it's a very simple surgical procedure. You know, it's like done in five minutes in clinics for humans. And so I think that's pretty obvious. But the situation for female dogs is entirely different because we know that if intact bitches retain their uterus, they are at risk for a condition called pyometra, which is an infection of the uterus. And it can be very severe and even can lead to death. And the longer the dog has their uterus intact, the greater their risk. And in fact, in some studies, the risk of a female dog that has its uterus is something like 20% of getting pyometra. So we definitely want to avoid that. So logically, of course, the idea would be then, well, let's remove the uterus and leave the ovaries in. There's an interesting story here because in the very early days of cervical cancer in women, when they had a pap smear and they found abnormal cells, they actually took out both the uterus and the ovaries. And those women, unfortunately, their lifespan was shortened by 15 years, and they experienced a lot of very negative effects, osteoporosis and other things. And so in women long-term, they've just been removing the uterus. Of course, as I said, we can't just you know apply what we know about humans to dogs. And so when we realized there was just no information about there, and we would love to get rid of just that uterus and retain the ovaries, then, you know, together with Good Dog, we're all thinking, okay, let's put out a survey. Let's get the information. There have been enough people out there now who have had this surgery. Let's ask them what their experience was or has been long-term, not only for their dogs that are still alive, but also dogs that have passed away. Personally, I probably know at least 50 people who have had the surgery, and I know there are hundreds and maybe thousands more that have. Okay. So yeah, this is kind of bringing us to today is the big reveal of our survey. So we've very been, exciting. 
fine tuning the survey for many months now. And some of our readers from our community volunteered to help us just do a pilot run last week and it went smoothly. So we feel confident in launching. So just to give people a little bit of information about the survey and kind of the research process, data is close to my heart. I love doing research. I'm sure you feel the same way because you have been dedicated to doing research for many years. But this is a survey. So we're asking basically anyone who has a dog, who has had a dog. To any dog. Any dog. Spayed, neutered, yes. vasectomy, OSS, intact, intact. any yep. dog. Living or deceased. So you can answer these questions about a dog that's passed as long as you know some basic information about their medical history. It's a short survey, so it should take you about five minutes per dog based on some of the feedback we've gotten, maybe even a little less. The survey is confidential. And just so you know, like kind of how we handle your data, you're not asked for your personal name. We're not going to release any identifying information related to like an individual or even their dog. It's really all about aggregating the data. So we're trying to get as much data as possible so we can say among vasectomy dogs overall, we saw X, Y, and Z. Now you are asked to enter your dog's name to prevent duplication because sometimes when people are filling out a survey with multiple dogs, they might accidentally fill out the information about the same dog. You can just enter initials or if you have a nickname for your dog, you don't have to enter like their registered name or anything that would identify you unless you want to. We're not asking for that information. We're really just trying to make sure if you have a dog named Jojo, you only answer one survey about Jojo. And then if you have another dog named Buddy, you answer a separate survey about Buddy. And we do ask participants to just answer as accurately as you can regarding health and behavior. We really want to have good data with integrity so that we can feel reasonably confident about what we're finding. Of course, this is what we would call a convenience sample, meaning that we're getting whoever is motivated to fill out the survey. And there's probably, if you're willing to fill out a survey about your dog, maybe you take better care of your dog than someone who's not going to take the time. We recognize that this is not going to be like a random sample of dog owners, but we're also looking for very specific conditions related to their reproductive status. So we do want to reach as many people as possible. So if you have friends with dogs, friends who breed dogs, friends with dogs with vasectomies or ovary spring phase, please spread the word, share the link. And, you know, we're not going to be able to prove that X causes Y, right? We're not going to be able to say that keeping your dog intact causes this, spaying and neutering your dog causes that. We're really looking for relationships or what we call correlations. And that's part of the nature of the data we're collecting. But it can help inform researchers as to where there are trends that require a closer, more careful look. So this is really like the first step in better understanding a phenomenon is to survey as many dog owners as possible. We hope to finish data collection around the end of the year, and hopefully we'll have a report back to all of you sometime early in the new year. It does take some time to clean up data and analyze it and make sure that everything is all cleaned up nicely, but we're definitely planning on sharing the results, depending on how things go, that could mean a scientific publication, or it could mean just a summary that we report out to the world. We'll kind of see what happens. And, you know, there's always the possibility that we won't find anything. You always have to kind of accept you're not doing science to prove something. You're doing science to kind of find out what's going on. And sometimes it supports your hypothesis and sometimes it doesn't. But I think regardless, this is going to be a very valuable contribution. We really appreciate anyone taking the time to fill out the survey. I think we're going to drop the link in the Facebook now or soon, and we'll be posting some ads in our Facebook group and to some other sources later. Dr. Zink is going to share it with some of her communities online. So the survey is live. If you have the link, you can fill it out. 
and we're going to start answering questions pretty soon. But Dr. Zink, do you want to add anything else about the survey methods or procedures? Yeah, you know, I think, honestly, with the number of dogs that are spayed or neutered in North America, you should look at this as if you're doing a huge service to all dogs everywhere. I mean, I really think this is, I can't think of anything that you could spend 10 or 15 minutes on if you have that many dogs, or even just five minutes for your one dog that could have as far reaching implications for the health of dogs. I mean, I don't even think I'm exaggerating. I really don't. This is the very first look at these procedures and being able to compare them to the traditionally spayed and neutered dogs or dogs that have been left intact. And this information has huge implications broadly for the health of our wonderful companions. I can't stress enough what a gift it would be for you to fill it out. Yeah, it's so true. And I think we've just been operating under certain assumptions about what procedures are right or, you know, making judgment based on them. And so this is really a good opportunity to expand our knowledge. Now we've got some questions. Are you ready? Um, Absolutely. Okay. So first question is just, is there a recommended age restriction for having an OSS or vasectomy? Should people wait until their dog is a certain age? No, that's the wonderful thing about it. So it can be done at absolutely any age. So for example, rescue organizations can be doing it on eight-week-old puppies that they have as a litter or any age. And the same thing for an ovary-sparing spay, because the big age limitation happens if you remove the gonads. But of course, that's not happening in these two procedures. So that's great news. That's great. Okay. Um, We've got a question. Do people want to do ovary-sparing spays and vasectomies strictly to prevent pregnancy? Am I being judgy or naive to wonder why pregnancy is such a risk? There are management alternatives after all. So yeah, can you speak to... Kind oh, of I so completely agree. It's like, <laughs> if you've ever seen a dog and a bitch breed, it takes a long time. And so I completely agree. The failure of the pet overpopulation problem is a failure of human management. I mean, I never vasectomized my male dogs because... They're never in a position to be near a bitch in heat unless I wish that to happen. Right. Now, the issue for bitches is different, though, because for the female dogs, the longer they live with that uterus, the more they have that risk of pyometra. Okay. And so there is that to consider as well. Sure. Yeah. And I think for probably not your average dog owner, right? I think that dog owners are not always willing to manage things. Like they kind of want an easy solution. So certainly, if vasectomies or ovary sparing phase turn out to be a safer alternative, then that's worth considering for people that really just don't have the desire or maybe ability to manage their dog's breeding. But it's a human resistance kind of issue or willingness, I guess. And I do think there's a higher level of management required for intact bitches, of course, than, yeah. than intact males, because they do have heat cycles. And that's a time when you have to manage them and be extra careful. So that's another consideration. Okay. We've got a question asking about links of studies done on Labrador retrievers that a breeder can share with their puppy families. I think we dropped in an article about early spay-neuter and that has some references in it. Do you have anything to say specifically about Labradors? I guess the only thing I would say is that it's clear that in the studies that have been done, early removal of the gonads does affect them and increases their risk of orthopedic conditions. It also increases their risk of cancers if they're spayed or neutered at any age but not as much as golden retrievers. So it's clear that Labrador retrievers are not as cancer prone as golden retrievers. I think the real thing here is when we talk about breeds, 
I guess the real thing we have to think about is that we need to treat every single dog as an individual. We need to think about its breed. We need to think about its home life. We need to think about the issues, you know, does the person want to manage this or not? There are so many factors that are involved that we don't want to treat this like mass veterinary medicine. And if any of you are as old as me, you remember when every kid that got a sore throat got put on a conveyor belt and had a tonsillectomy. (laughs) And, you know, the surgeons made massive amounts of money on that. And only later did we realize that that is a really critical immune organ. And we were just cutting them out because they seemed inconvenient. We don't want to do that. That was the 50s. You know, we want to be more thoughtful about the surgery that we perform. That's a great point. Yeah. And I think that certainly some of the research, again, when you do research, you are aggregating data and thinking about what Lynette and Benjamin Hart have done at UC Davis, right? They've published a few papers now on early spay-neuter and outcomes and looking at breeds. And you're right. It's like, okay, overall, maybe golden retrievers had X, Y, or Z outcomes, but that doesn't mean every single dog in that breed had the same outcome. So it's important to understand. Exactly. It's a population study. Yep. Yep. We do research. We're looking at overall averages, but that can't predict what will happen to your dog. And it doesn't tell you what happened to any individual dog in that study. It shows you how that group of dogs did. So it's really important to think about that as well. Okay, we've got more questions. Wondering about the best options of altering performance female after she retires from breeding. I don't want to leave her intact and risk pyometra, but I have concerns with traditional spay and removal of hormones. But then OSS can have a stump pyometra and they still go into season. But removal of ovaries and leaving uterus is the same issue, albeit smaller surgery still takes all the hormones. So basically, this person is just trying to decide what is the best thing to do with her dog after her final litter. Okay, so I want to address one thing that she mentioned, and that is that. Dogs with an OSS can still get stump pyometra. And I would say to that, that if the OSS surgery is done correctly, they absolutely will not get a stump pyometra. If it's done sloppily and the surgeon doesn't take the entire uterus out, yes, that can happen. And that's why it's so important to have this surgery done by an experienced veterinarian. Mm, okay. That's a really important factor. You know, really the reason we're doing it is to prevent pyometra, and that's only done by removing all of the uterus. I can't remember all of the, it was a long question, but we should mention that dogs that have OSS, ovary sparing spay, can have mild heats. They have very little, if any, discharge, but they'll get a swollen vulva and they could have behavioral changes. But the biggest inconvenience of that, which I suppose would be the discharge, et cetera, is a minor or non-issue. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, that was a long question. She has a lot of concerns. And I'm glad that she does, because it's really important to think about all sides of this question. Yes. And that's what this survey is trying to address. Yeah, exactly. Okay, someone asks if in a group situation like a dog daycare, will neutered males attack intact males? So should people be concerned about issues mixing intact and neutered dogs? So it's a strange but interesting situation that neutered males do tend to aggress towards intact males. Yes, I think they're jealous. They've lost their (laughs) testicles. No, I'm only kidding. But no, that is an actual issue, sadly enough. But doesn't it kind of tell you that removing the testicles doesn't lead towards better behavior? And that has Mm. been shown in a number of studies. But In a daycare situation, I would really hope that the people who are running the daycare are on top of this. 
Right. And so if you were to take your dog, for example, to a dog park, that you would be on top of this. I'm not a fan of dog parks personally, but this would be something that you would need to have in the back of your mind. Although I will tell you, I've had unneutered males. I love the boys. So I've had unneutered males all my life, never been attacked by a neutered male. So I think sometimes this is a little bit exaggerated. Yeah. One instance gets known and everybody gets worried. But yeah, it's part of managing our dogs. Sure. I think, you know, it speaks to an interesting question about like, how does changing their hormonal profile change kind of the dog-dog communication, right? Like, obviously, there's something going on. Yeah, or smelling something. Yeah. We sometimes have a hard time stepping outside, I think, of our kind of visual or whatever world we're in. You know, we don't live in a very olfactory world, but certainly dogs do. So it, it makes me wonder if there's some changes in how dogs kind of understand what a dog is like maybe removing the gonads removes some of their olfactory abilities or some i don't know i'm just kind of stretching but it's interesting that there would be that kind of communication breakdown when they have different reproductive statuses yeah i agree yeah okay we are still getting questions so any opportunity to manage pyometra versus just using spay as an alternative well yes the issue is Yes, there are different severities of pyometra and not all of them result in death by any means. And many bitches can be treated for pyometra successfully. So it's not only about absolutely having to spay or remove the uterus. But the problem with pyometra is sometimes it goes undetected and it can frequently go undetected until it's really a very severe problem. And dogs are so good at hiding You know, they're just kind of like, oh, this is my life. I don't feel good. Yeah. And so that's the problem is that it might go undetected for a while enough so that it becomes really severe. But I do think in some ways, I think veterinarians sometimes are so indoctrinated into spaying everything that they look at spaying the bitch as, oh, yeah, well, we'll take care of that. We'll get rid of everything, you know. And I think, again, you know, sometimes we have to maybe speak up and say, I would like to try treating this unless you could explain to me why we shouldn't attempt that. Okay. Any early signs that people can be looking out for if they have an intact female as far as like what would be a warning? Yeah, it's usually a fever, malaise, slow down of activity, just looking like a sick dog, you know? Okay, yeah. And that's always worth checking if you have an intact bitch would be to take the temperature immediately, any fever, but some of them don't have a fever. So get the dog to the veterinarian for a check. Okay. Will an ovary sparing spay result in a spay coat? Can you uh, explain the spay coat? And Yeah, so (laughs) that's a really interesting question. We don't really know the answer to it, but we're pretty sure that that spay coat is a result of not having the hormones that are produced by the ovaries. So I would think that with an ovary sparing spay, Mm -hmm. you would not get spay coat. So what is spay coat? It's actually an overgrowth of the coat. Sometimes it's kind of a uniform overgrowth where the coat just gets big and oftentimes softer. Okay. But I actually have a neighbor who spayed her golden retriever and the golden retriever has massive bulges of fluffy hair just over the front legs and over the back legs in the same place. And she has to take a clipper and clip it every couple of weeks or the dog doesn't even look like a golden retriever. So there's variable levels of it. Most often it's just a really abundant, softer, coat. Okay. We've got a viewer who says, I ended up having an ovariectomy on my GSD at 20 months, hoping it would help her allergies. 
It did help the ear margin hair loss, but of course not the allergies. Now I'm concerned that I did this too early and I'm worried about future repercussions. So we probably do have some folks here who did get an early spay neuter of their dogs. Can anything be done now? What should they be looking out for as far as their dog's health? Okay, so first of all, I'm going to say that a study of 90,000 dogs, 90,000 dogs, that's a pretty big study, showed that spaying and neutering made allergies worse, significantly okay. worse. So whoever gave her that impression had incorrect information, Okay. which I know is frustrating, but I did want to say that. And here's the thing. We know absolutely nothing about hormone replacement in dogs. We have no idea how you might approach it or whether it can even be approached or what you would give or how much you would give. And so honestly, there's kind of no way of going back here. And I think that this study might actually stimulate researchers to look into the whole question of hormone replacement therapy. I hope it might actually do that so that we can do something with these dogs that are already experiencing this. But at the current moment, we know absolutely nothing about that. And I wouldn't suggest that we sort of start using our dogs as an experiment and see what we can do. And I just don't think it's a good place to go. Yeah, I think I did see a case study published this year on a male dog. But obviously, a case study is not a body of research that supports doing something. So, you know, And I think on a male dog, it's much more clear because you've got yeah. testosterone. But right. females, we've got that whole balance between progesterone and estrogen. And when is it, you know, I think it's yeah. just much more complex. It's more complicated. Yeah. Okay. Do intact females have a higher chance of mammary cancer? So that's a good question. And I will tell you that. See, how can I explain this? So there was a study done by Beauvais et al. in 2012 that looked at all of the studies of mammary cancer in intact bitches. And he showed that the studies that were done were biased and poorly organized. They were done really because people wanted to know if they could use dogs as a model for mm -hmm. breast cancer in women. Okay. And really it was just unsuccessful. Gotcha. But having said that, yes, intact bitches are at greater risk for mammary cancer. But here's what it looked like in my study. First of all, mammary cancer, if caught early by palpation, even if the cancer itself is malignant, you know, histologically, you know, it's been studied, it's been shown to be malignant, is in general, it hasn't gone anywhere. Okay. And also, in at least in my study of visualis, what I did was I compared the incidence of mammary cancer, which I consider a much less fatal cancer, to the incidence of hemangiosarcoma, lymphoma, and other fatal cancers in the spayed dogs. And there was approximately 10 times more fatal cancers in spayed dogs than mammary cancers in intact dogs. Okay. And so I feel very strongly that what we should be doing in intact females is exactly what we do in intact women, which is Monthly annual checkups. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're not spaying all women because they might get breast cancer. Sure. I think that's something that this study might lead people to ask that question. How can we manage that? Yeah, great. And, and I've got a related mammary gland question, which is what's the effect on mammary gland infections? They didn't specify, but I assume they mean like... They're thinking mastitis. Yeah. Well, mastitis really only occurs in bitches that have had puppies. Yeah. So... Oh, an um, OSS should... Yeah. Well, I guess if they haven't had puppies already, right? So. Right. Okay. We've got a question about laparoscopic 
What spay is done laparoscopically? Well, the most common spay or surgery that's done laparoscopically is removal of the ovaries only, which in my opinion has the equivalent outcome to removal of both the ovaries and uterus. So it's really just like a traditional spay, but involves less intervention. Right. The hormonal effect will be gone, right? Yep. The hormones are gone. Yep. And at least currently, we can't do a laparoscopic OSS. Okay. Because you have to go in and look and see where the cervix and uterus are and make sure you get all the uterus out. Okay. Got a question. Does pyometra happen only during heat or could it happen at any time? I believe it's only as a consequence of being in heat. Okay. It happens after being in heat. Great. We've got a question about zootering. Yeah. So I've got two points to make on that. Can you first explain what zootering is? Okay. So that's the injection of, in this case, I think it's a zinc-related compound, injecting it into the testicles to stop a dog's reproductive ability. The problem with that is that you also kill off the cells that produce the testosterone. So you might as well just take the testicles out. You end up with 25 to 40% of the normal level of testosterone. So to that extent, you're also going to end up with a greater risk of the problems associated with removing the testicles. Okay. And the other thing I just want to say is, if you talk to the manufacturer, they will tell you it's painful. And Mm. if you think about injecting one cc of even a sterile saline into a testicle and ask some men about that, what they think that would feel like. No, it is painful. It's quite painful. And I don't recommend it for those two reasons. Okay. It made me squirm a little bit inside. So. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've got another spay coat question, which is, does spay coat happen after every dog gets fixed? Since my dam got spayed, her coat has been softer and fuller. So is this what all dogs get spay coat or? Most. Most. Okay. Most. But it's particularly noticeable in dogs that have double coats. For example, a dog like a farrow hound, you might not notice it in very much because they just have a short coat anyway. Maybe it'll get a little thicker and a little softer, but it's not as noticeable. But in dogs with double coats like Shelties and Golden Retrievers and Labrador Retrievers and other dogs with abundant coat, it can become quite noticeable. I feel that way about my own hair sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Just a reminder, I believe we posted a link to the survey and we'll be sharing it online in multiple venues over the next few days. We're really excited to have your participation and we're excited to learn more. And certainly, you know, I think because they're the least common procedures, if you know anyone who has a dog that's had a vasectomy or an ovary sparing spay, please encourage them to participate just because I think that's going to be the hardest group for us to recruit a large number. Obviously, we know we've got a lot of intact dogs amongst our breeder community and we know a lot of dogs out there. What percent of dogs do you think are spayed and neutered? In the pet population, it has to be well over 90%. Wow. Okay. It's great that this is going out to good dog because we also want lots of intact dogs too. Yeah. Yeah, But it also speaks to if some of the concerns about early spay neuter in particular are, you know, these health consequences and 90%. How massively that affects the population of dogs, right? You know? Yeah. Okay. We've got people bringing in some more questions. Is there any information about the effects on behavior of neutering a two and a half year old golden retriever? So I think probably the study that you did with James Serple touched on behavior, I'm guessing, to an extent. Right. So, and I think, I'm not sure if the HARPS study addressed that as well. So let me tell you the results of my Vigila study. I mean, it's another sporting breed. It's not exactly golden retrievers, but it's sort of like your average sporting breed. And I'll tell you what I learned there. 
because there I looked specifically at dogs that were spayed at six months or earlier, between seven and 12 months or after 12 months and behavior. And we ruled out all of the dogs that were neutered because of an already existing behavior problem. So they weren't in that part of the study. And what we found was it didn't matter what age the dog was spayed or neutered at, they were more likely to develop a behavior problem. Not only that, they were more likely to develop at an earlier age. So that's worrisome. And then another study that I did looked at over 15,000 dogs using Dr. Serple's CBARC behavioral questionnaire, which is very well validated. And that looked just at aggression. And it looked at aggression towards other dogs, aggression towards family members, and aggression towards strangers. And we looked at dogs that were spayed or neutered at six months or younger, seven to 12 months, 12 to 18 months, or after 18 months of age, or left intact. And we showed that, contrary to popular opinion, spaying and neutering didn't make a dog less aggressive. But dogs that were spayed or neutered between seven and 12 months of age were more aggressive to strangers. Okay. So we're getting some questions really, I think, more on the like kind of philosophical attitudes about, you know, spay and neuter. So what about shelters who must spay and neuter early? How do we address that situation? So I guess I'm going to risk being a little bit of an outsider on this opinion here. But I would like to say that I think that we need to be very, very careful about our understanding of what the so-called pet overpopulation problem is in this Mm -hmm. country. Yeah. If we really have a pet overpopulation problem in this country, why in 2012, according to the CDC, why did we bring 12,000 dogs from the streets of Taiwan to populate the shelters in the Pacific Northwest? Why are we going to Mexico to get dogs? And why are we going to the Caribbean to get dogs? Why did we bring 600 golden retrievers from Turkey, etc.? This is happening over and over again, dogs being brought from Korea. Why do we have a pet overpopulation problem if that's what we're doing? We have to ask ourselves. It's a lot more nuanced than we think. And while I recognize there are areas in the country where there are pet overpopulation problems, this is not a uniform problem across the country. And I do feel that we should take care of it within our own borders first and not be looking to save every dog in the entire world. So let's look at it within our own borders and shift dogs from where there are overpopulation problems to where the shelters are empty, which is basically the Northeast and the Northwest. And let's also understand that sometimes the people who run shelters, they are making their livelihood from finding homes for dogs. And if there are no dogs in their area, how are they going to make their livelihood? So sometimes it's an issue of retail rescue not good-hearted rescue. And I recognize there are wonderfully good-hearted people who are really trying to find homes for dogs. But what we lack is data. We lack the knowledge of exactly how many dogs there are that need homes. And the other thing I'd like to bring up as well is that not every dog in every shelter deserves to be alive. Some of them are just not going to make good citizens and We need to be better at selecting those ones that are. Right. And I think that's a hard thing to discuss or talk about. makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's certainly important to consider. Now, that brings up a few questions, which is just one person mentions their vet completely resists not neutering. Will there be information going to vets to raise their consciousness about this topic and also just about the cultural differences? Like in some countries, they really don't practice kind of standard 
spay and neuter them all and just that it seems to be more of an American thing. Would you agree? Well, I'd like to say that some of the most educated countries in the world, like Scandinavia, it's illegal to spay or neuter because it's considered unnecessary surgery unless there's a medical reason. And that speaks very much to their ability to manage their dogs because they don't have an overpopulation problem. And so it's a human problem in the United States. And we need to also address it on that front as well by education, peer pressure, and other factors. Yeah. Okay, we've got someone that wants to confirm that it's okay to perform a vasectomy or ovary sparing stay on an eight-week-old puppy. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, if someone wants to fix a dog with a traditional spay and neuter, should they get x-rays to see if their dog's growth plates are closed first? That would be helpful. However, that won't mitigate the fact that their dog is going to be at increased risk for behavior problems and cancer, particularly in the larger breeds. Okay. Someone wants to know if spaying a breeding female right after her last whelping is the best practice. I guess assuming that they are going to spay her. I probably would wait until at least a month after the puppies have been weaned, maybe two months after the puppies have been, probably a month after the puppies have gone home. Okay, great. We've got a question. With the possible mild heat mentioned earlier, do females with ovary sparing spay still have the same potential for blowing coat or false pregnancy as they do in a traditional heat? That's a question we don't know the answer to effectively. It's one of the things we want to know about. Yeah. I would think that because that's an estrogen slash progesterone related issue that they probably would still blow coat, but not like the way they blow coat after having puppies, certainly. But again, it's kind of a question mark. Not sure. Okay. And we got a question that we can answer very easily. Someone wants to know if we want survey respondents from only the United States, only North America, or from the whole world, where should they share the survey? The whole world. Whole world, everywhere. Yes. (laughs) Share it with everyone you know who might be interested in participating, for sure. And I think on that note, we will wrap up. And I just want to thank you so much for, first of all, working on this with us. We're so excited at Good Dog to be participating in research, and we hope this will just be the first of many research projects. And we are just more than honored to have you as one of our advisors and to be collaborating with you on this project. So thank you, Dr. Zink. I thank everybody here for hanging out with us and asking so many amazing questions and being so engaged. This was really fun. And remember, everybody, you have the opportunity here to change the dog world, to change dogs' lives. It's exciting. Yeah, we're really excited to work with everybody. This is a great opportunity for us, and we really hope to answer some really important, outstanding questions and and improve the lives of our dogs. Thank you, everybody. 